the inevitable conquest let's come at it this time from Psalm 72 as our point of departure it says on top a, a psalm for Solomon some would say a psalm of Solomon but I'm inclined to think it's a psalm of David for Solomon inasmuch as verse 20 <clears throat> the prayers of David the son of Jesse are ended seems to attribute both this psalm and its predecessor psalms to David rather than to Solomon but now the very fact that the superscription uh, which of course is um, assailable in the original is described as a psalm for Solomon makes some people dare I call them preterists of a sense uh, deny its application to the Lord Jesus Christ I, I have a student like this at the seminary and he gets very enraged when I try to apply Psalm uh, 72 to uh, the Lord Jesus he feels if I were a better exegete than I am I would obviously apply it to David's son Solomon and no further and it was all completely preteristically fulfilled in that life of Solomon and there's no carryover however I think you should realize that even if I'm wrong that he's way out on a limb as far as the Christian church is concerned so I do associate myself with Isaac Watts who says this does mean Jesus shall reign wherever son doth his successive journeys run and his kingdom shall reign from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more of course there is a sense in which it was partially fulfilled in Solomon and centrally fulfilled in that greater Solomon and that greater David the Lord Jesus Christ and here we get in, of course into the uh, system of hermeneutics and it would seem to me that the safest rule of hermeneutics is not even to ask who said it and when was it said and to whom was it then said and those are important questions but I think that we are required to have a trinocentric Christocentric hermeneutic and this I would say is what really segregates all Christian exegetes of the Old Testament from all Judaistic exegetes of the Old Testament so um, for what it's worth that's my approach give the king thy judgments O God and thy righteousness unto the king's son he shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment the mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness he shall judge the poor of the people he shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor who is it? Solomon but I think also and more importantly that greater Solomon the true wisdom of God the Lord Jesus Christ from whom Solomon derived uh, his dependent wisdom perhaps we're um, at liberty at this point to understand who the first four verses is talking about by matching it alongside of uh, Isaiah chapter 11 the first six or seven verses which say some pretty similar things about that son of Jesse who would also be David then Solomon and then finally I think we would all agree Jesus and in that case Isaiah 11 I think all brands of Christians would agree that the one under discussion is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ although Judaistic Jews no doubt would want to give it some application either to David himself possibly to Solomon but to chop it off at that point so let me just throw this out here I think in this whole important realm of exegesis and particularly hermeneutics as we wrestle with these issues that are not always easy after all we are Christians are we not and where there are several possible options of interpretation I think that our pre-theological pre-theoretical presuppositional bias should be that Jesus is indeed very God of very God the central person of the Trinity and that in him all things consist including this psalm well now <clears throat> he judges the poor of the people and he shall save the children of the needy and we witness our Savior's compassion uh, towards children towards the needy not just in the Sermon on the Mount but in the many, many miracles that he performed and in the way in which he tells his followers that he was in jail and he was suffering and he was hungry etc and inasmuch as 
the needs of the least of his brethren, Christian brethren, were met, uh, these things were being done for him personally. You can see how that is so in terms of the church, those that belong to Jesus, being the true body of Christ. Uh, we do these things for Christ if we do them for our fellow Christians. In not doing them for our fellow Christians, we are not doing these things for the Lord Jesus, he tells us. But now, verse 5, they shall fear thee as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. This shows that when Christ's kingdom is established, that uh, people everywhere, the poor and the needy, uh, children will begin to fear him, and that their fear will continue, and increase of course, but it will continue as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. Of the increase of his kingdom there shall be no end. Isaiah chapter 9. Once it's commenced, it will just increase and last forever and increase extensively and intensively uh, and successively and linearly forever, as long as the sun and the moon endure. How long do the sun and the moon endure? At least until the second coming. And what about after that? Well, the city hath no need of the sun or the moon. Does that mean there won't be a sun or a moon? Big debate, very difficult matter to settle. But there is a sense in which, you could, uh, which we should say that when Jesus comes again, his mediatorial reign will, what, be annihilated? No, I think not. Will be consummated in the reign of the triune God. Then shall the sun subject himself so that God, not the Father, but the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, shall be all things in all people. And then after that, uh, it continues to endure forever, throughout all generations. At any rate, as long as there are people in this world making generations, as long as people are being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, this kingdom of Jesus, yes, even the mediatorial kingdom, shall continue. Now look at verse 6. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth. I believe myself that this is a reference to the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. Notice the word I phrased, the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. Coming again is not just the final coming. It is many of the repeated comings of Christ, and a very important coming again of Jesus was on the day of Pentecost. As he tells us in John 14 through 16, I shall not leave you alone as orphans. Uh, I will send you another comforter. I will come to you. He says, I will come to you. And Christ does come to his church in his spirit, who is the spirit of Christ. And it was on the day of Pentecost that he did indeed come down like rain upon the mown grass. Good argument for baptism by sprinkling, by the way, because that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it took place uh, in a rainy kind of a way, rather than in an immersionistic kind of way. So he came down like rain upon the mown grass. Uh, this student of mine, who's a preterist on this uh, um, psalm, uh, wanted me to give a long, detailed explanation of the word moan. And uh, this word seemed to grab him more than any other word uh, in this psalm. The word moan, W-O-M-O-W-N. And uh, <laughs> I'm getting tired, as you can see. <laughs> uh, at any rate, um, <clears throat> all I could say to him was, well, I would imagine that if the moanness of the grass has any significance, it would refer A to the demoralization of God's people. They were all mown down before the Spirit of Christ energized them on the day of Pentecost, just as the Lord Jesus was himself mown down and cut off um, covenantally from the land of the living. Uh, but uh, he wasn't satisfied with that explanation, and it may well be, see Richard shaking his head, that uh, he has an insight that uh, hasn't occurred to me yet as to the precise meaning of the word moan in that expression, the mown grass. But I would think myself that the, the main thought uh, here in the psalm is not whether the grass has been mown or not. <laughs> uh, that I would 
hope we can all see is somewhat incidental. The main thought is the transformation of the world as a result of the coming of Christ to the world, both at his incarnation and then on the day of Pentecost with his spirit. The rain comes down on the grass, the showers water the earth, and things begin to flourish, you see, to grow strongly. In his days shall the righteous flourish, and abundance of peace, so long as the moon endureth. And he shall have dominion also from sea to sea, from the river until the ends of the earth. Now I must ask, and this is a matter of some importance, uh, is his dominion from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth immediately recognized throughout the world? Or is man's recognition of this dominion which Christ has achieved something that undergoes growth and indeed metaphysical alteration in terms of conversion, translation out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son? I would think the latter. So I would say that the way in which Christ exercises his dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers unto the ends of the earth is by the extension of his church. Our Westminster standards are at pains to point out that um, the church of Christ is the kingdom of Christ. And this is true if by church you don't just mean the church as an institute or the visible church, but the church is the sum total of God's elect. Um, on the other hand, of course, the kingdom of Christ is an area much larger than the area catered to by the visible church. But nevertheless, there is this connection between kingdom and church, which I think is important for us to see. So he shall have dominion from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth, I would suggest, is in large measure uh, something that uh, coincides with the boundaries of his church or the expansion of his church. As his church expands, so does the scope of his kingdom expand as far as human recognition of that kingdom is concerned. As the church contracts, so does the kingdom of Christ contract as far as human recognition of that kingdom is concerned here on earth. And of course our goal is to bring all people under the kingship of Jesus Christ, that is, to bring all people into fellowship with his church and to eat and drink and do everything else to God's glory. Notice the absoluteness of this conquest. It says, They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, his enemies shall lick the dust. Uh, this is no... Uh, small-scale conquest that we're talking about here. This is a conquest, albeit an increasing conquest and a slow conquest, but is a conquest that achieves universal proportions. Verse 10, the kings of Tarshish, probably meaning Spain, and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba from Arabia shall offer gifts. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, their children, all come to the feet of this Savior to offer gifts to him. By the way, that's interesting because it shows that what we Christians are to do are to glory, not just to thank God for saving us through Christ, but to bring gifts to him, to present ourselves uh, to him as our reasonable religion, being transformed in everything that we have, uh, showing the necessity of good works in the life of a believer. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. Verse 11. Again, this does not teach three Tahitians and four Samoans and five New Zealanders and six New Caledonians. No. It teaches that all nations shall serve him, from Greenland's icy mountains to India's coral strands, and not just all nations, but all of the political leaders of all nations, all kings shall fall down and serve him. And I am longing for the day, I really am, when the Kremlin leaders will fall down and proclaim Jesus to be what he is, Lord of all, and their Lord and their Savior. And we should be working towards this goal. There is no discharge in this goal. It's a matter of constant increase of his kingdom as I see it. And then many other uh, incidents of his conquest are mentioned. 
uh, agricultural languages used. I'll just deal with that a little bit. Verse 16. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. And this is not only imagery borrowed from agriculture, but I believe, rightly interpreted, it also implies the regeneration of agriculture and agricultural methods too. When we bring the whole world under God's law, and when we apply uh, the laws of physics and of agriculture, the way in which God made them, to what needs to be done, and do so willingly. His name, verse 17, shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Uh, there's no exception. All nations. Afghanistan shall call him blessed. And, uh, and Paraguay shall call him blessed. And Rwanda, Burundi shall call him blessed. There's not a nation on the face of the earth which will not call Jesus blessed. That's what it says. And then in verse 19, Blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. This is a, a recognition of Christ's kingship of global proportions. And it's promised in God's word, it's predicted in his word, his conquest of the world is inevitable. Well now, with that as the Old Testament background, let's now open the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, and perhaps an appropriate place to start would be Revelation chapter 5. And as we read this, you'll see how it fits in with what we were saying in the last lecture about um, Daniel chapter 7. The context, of course, is that of heaven. Uh, John has been given an insight into heaven, and amongst the many things that he sees in heaven, he also sees a book with seven seals. Revelation 5, 5. And behold, uh, there was no one found anywhere who could open that book, the book with the seven seals. We should ask, I think, what was written in this book? What book is this? Is this a, a book, merely a list of those who were written down in the Lamb's Book of Life to be saved before the foundation of the world? Is that the content of the book? Some think so. Is the book the entitlement of Christians to enjoy the covenantal blessings so that the one who will be found to open the seals of the book and to unroll the, the book roll, of course the book was in the form of the book roll, would be looking at a legal document entitling us to possess the earth and I, I think there certainly is that aspect of it. But it does seem to me uh, that what this book role basically is is a description of the main events of then future church history that are unrolled one after another and that the uh, the seals are broken successively at different parts of this book roll as they are unrolled. At least that's the impression I get when you consider the uh, successive enumeration of the opening of the seven seals and then when the seventh seal is opened uh, revealing seven trumpets, seven angels with seven trumpets that those trumpets are described successively and events are described which take place after those trumpets and then particularly when you get to the sixth trumpet there is at first a pause well indeed a pause after the opening of the seventh uh, seal before the first trumpet starts to blow and then also a bit of a pause I think after the blowing of the sixth trumpet and then finally that the time that would still remain to elapse between the sixth and the seventh trumpets will expire. Uh, not time shall be no more, but the time of waiting between the sixth and the seventh trumpet shall be no more, and then the blowing of the seventh trumpet. I do not see all six seals being broken, at, seven seals being broken at the same time. I do not read in the Bible of all seven trumpets being sounded at the same time, but they're done successively, one after the other. And because I believe the book of Revelation is grounded 
to a great extent in the book of Daniel and because the whole movement of Daniel is clearly in terms of historic succession rather than in terms of contemporaneous preterism if I can use that word I'm inclined to think that the historicistic interpretation uh, is really the key to the interpretation of the book of Revelation now I'm aware of the problems those who are preterists say no how can you construe Revelation historicistically because in that case uh, the book of Revelation would have been unintelligible to the first century initial addressees to whom the book was sent what would they know about the Protestant Reformation about the final fall of the papal antichrist good point but let's ask it the other way around this revelation was not just given was it for the first century Christians to the exclusion of second third fourth fifth and sixth and seventh century Christians etc so to preteristically argue that the whole or almost the whole of the book of Revelation was intended only for the first century addressees would be for Christ to have left the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth etc century addressees without the expectation of the fulfillment of prophecy in their time or in the time immediately subsequent and would really have put them in the position of saying well we operate from a once and for all fulfilledness of the history but you can't really get that either from the book of Revelation because even the most avowed preterist would have to admit that um, the final judgment has not yet started to take place although they have been preterists I think of Roderick Campbell being one of them who argues that Revelation 21-22 is not at all a picture of the church triumphant but it's a picture purely of the church militant uh, whereas um, I myself believe it's particularly a picture of the church triumphant but I agree with what Greg Barnson says in his tape that really at that point the church triumphant and the church militant uh, are so interlaced with one another that some of the things in Revelation 21-22 apply to the church uh, um, militant but perhaps most of them apply to the church triumphant yes I see it that way too well now this is an important issue because it's going to affect what we're going to understand about the interpretation and the application of the events described that would take place after the opening of the seven seals of the book and then also the blowing of the seven trumpets after the breaking open of the seventh seal now when um, <clears throat> who will open this book who will open this book and of course I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the middle of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain verse 7 he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne and when he took the book then there was a tremendous song of praise in glory and the four and twenty elders said verse 9 thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth do you see the historical flow of what they're singing you have saved us we are now priests and it is quite certain that we shall reign upon the earth past present and future again the flow of history but where are they singing this I think they're singing it in heaven so stated and I don't believe with some people that would apply this language to the church militant here on earth I think it's talking of the church already triumphant in heaven in other words they have this memory of what Christ did achieve on Calvary they know that they are right now priests in heaven and they're looking forward to reigning on the earth with Jesus after his return to the earth at the end of the millennium and after the final judgment now all of this please notice past present and future is being said why because the lamb has opened the book right that's why another reason why I think that this book with the seven seals is dealing with the past the present and the future 
or as the statement at the beginning of Revelation seems to indicate, I shall show you the things that, that uh, uh, are and are to come hereafter. Well now the opening of the seals begins to take place, the inevitable conquest. Chapter 6 verse 1, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see, and I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now the question is, is that Christ or Antichrist? <laughs> Quite a difference, isn't it? Who is this riding on the white horse that goes forth conquering and to conquer? Is it some primitive Roman Caesar? Is it possibly the armies of the Pope in the place, the Romish Pope in the place of the pagan Roman Caesar, or is it our Lord Jesus Christ? I'd be inclined to argue with most expositors that this is the Lord Jesus. And for the simple reason that the only other mention of anyone riding on a white horse in the book of Revelation is, of course, Revelation 19, where we are clearly told that he who rides on the white horse there has the words, the word of God written on his hip. In other words, he who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And also, because on the very last page of uh, this book of Revelation, there is again reference made to what the Spirit saith to the churches, tying up Revelation 22 to what has been stated in Revelation chapter 1 and 2, showing us that the whole book is really to be understood as one unit. So I am assuming, and hopefully correctly, that the one riding on the white horse is Jesus Christ. And uh, he's conquering. He has a bow, and he shoots forth his arrows into the hearts of men and women, wounding them unto death, and then, of course, healing them. A crown was given to him. He's an already crowned king. And what's he doing? He's galloping forth. Where? First century Jerusalem, period, or throughout the world and all future centuries of world history. I'm inclined to think the latter. He gallops forth, conquering and to conquer. Perhaps this is a Hebrewism in the, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, with the uh, infinitive absolute, wouldn't it be? He goes forth conquering, yes, surely to conquer, which, of course, uh, strengthens this enormously. His purpose of going forth unto war, the Son of God goes forth to war, conquering now and to conquer. And that this is the first thing that Christ begins to do after what? Earning the right to break open the seals of this book of future history as I construe it and his legal title to the world too after the completion of his Calvary work when on the clouds of heaven Daniel 7 he has come back to the right hand of God the Father he has sat down he says Father I have kept the faith I have finished I have kept the covenant of works that you gave to Adam as the second Adam I have overcome give her the book Father and then he breaks open the sea when he breaks open the seal, the conquest of the world by the victorious risen Christ begins. Of course, that's coupled with the day of Pentecost too, isn't it? Remember what Peter says in Acts chapter 2? After he has been highly exalted unto the right hand of God the Father, he, the Lord Jesus, took this which you now see and hear and has poured it out. You see, and then with that outpouring of the Spirit into the church, energizing this mown-down church, causing it to grow, we have the rejuvenation, the revitalization of the previously dejected body of Christ, and Christ himself in his church and through his church, in the power of his Spirit, rides forth, conquering and to conquer. Now, I don't have time to deal with the uh, subsequent uh, four seals, but it does seem to me that they start happening one after another. First, the conquest of the one on the white horse, the Lord Jesus, conquering the earth from heaven through his poured out spirit, through his church as his body, and then, of course, the other things that follow, death and hell and the pale horse and so forth. Except to say that I believe that each time one of these seals is broken, an event starts which 
often never ceases. We shouldn't think that Christ's going forth conquering and to conquer ceases the moment the second seal is, is, is broken. I'm claiming that that conquest continues even during the duration of the subsequent opening of the second seal. It's like the days of creation. Whatever God created on day one is not annihilated at the end of day one and replaced dispensationalistically by a new set of circumstances created on day two. No. But in spite of the creation of a new set of circumstances on day two, that which God created and put into operation on day one continues to operate even during day two and day three, etc. And you get a cumulative unfolding of history. Again, the principle of historicism, if you want to call it that, of, uh, as opposed to preterism, of, of the onward flow of this history, grounded in the very first page of the Bible itself. I have the one word to say about the downfall of Christ's enemy with the, the breaking, the opening of the fourth seal. You remember that uh, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, and every bondsman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains, Fall on us and hide in us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of God for the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? Question. When was that fulfilled or is it to be fulfilled? 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem, as some claim. Um, destruction of the pagan Roman Empire at the nominal Christianization thereof on the conversion of Emperor Constantine 312 through 321 AD or the very end of the world. Before you say definitely AD 70 period, be reminded that the language of verse 15, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, the bondsmen, the free men, is very, very reminiscent, or rather anticipatory, of very similar language found in Revelation 18, right? The fall of that city there. And that's why I don't know that you can claim that Revelation 6's close is referring exclusively to the A.D. 70 fall of Jerusalem unless you also claim that Revelation 18 describing the fall of that city there is also referring to the fall of Jerusalem rather than to the fall of the pagan Roman Empire. Uh, I myself would leave it elastic. Personally, if I have my preference, I do think that Revelation 6 is referring to A.D. 70 to the fall of uh, the uh, Jerusalem uh, rather than to uh, to the fall of Rome although I may be wrong on that and uh, having done a lot of research into it I don't yet know enough to be categorical about it but the point is that life goes on in Revelation 7 you'll notice that um, the the angels of the living God hold back the four winds of the earth so that the winds do not blow until the sealing of God's elect have been accomplished. And that apparently is during the sixth seal too. And then in Revelation 8, that may be referring to the fall of Jerusalem, or more elastically, to the ongoing work of the bringing of God's elect into the Christian church on earth. Of course, there's a great difficulty there as to whether you see the 144,000 as being exclusively Hebrew Christians uh, as opposed to the great multitude thereafter that no man can number as being the Gentile Christians but my own thought on that and it's a difficult matter is no it's the same group of people but the 144,000 the totality of Christ's church converted from Jews and Gentiles is seen here on earth the church militant whereas what you're told from Revelation 7 verse 9 onwards is a description of the same group of people or the same kind of people once they go to glory and enter into the church triumphant but possibly before the final coming in other words what we would have there would be from Revelation 7 9 onwards to the end of the chapter would be a description of the church triumphant before the second coming the interregnum church rather than that of the church on the renewed earth but there too I don't know that one can be categoric I'm sure that there are elements even of the final state of the believer already anticipated in the end of Revelation 7. 
Then with the opening of the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. And here too we've got a real <laughs> expositor's headache, not of understanding what it says, but of understanding what it means, of what the events described in the blowing on the seven trumpets are referring to. But uh, let me say that I think that the first four trumpets described in the rest of Revelation uh, 8 are referring to major events in the subsequent history of the pagan Roman Empire after the fall of Jerusalem. So I'm assuming then that Revelation 6 terminates with the fall of Jerusalem. Revelation 7 is uh, to sit down and collect where we go from here as the church now that Jerusalem has fallen. And then we see in Revelation 8 the continuation of the church in the pagan Roman Empire during the first four uh, trumpets that have blown, uh, which I would think with Jonathan Edwards do predict and describe the rise of Arianism and various heresies in the Christian church and so forth, until we arrive at the fifth angel, uh, chapter 9, which I take to be Muhammad. You'd be amazed how many Bible expositors have seen the events described by the fifth angel blowing the fifth trumpet as referring to the rise of Muhammad and the events described after the blowing of the sixth trumpet which has a lot of similarity with the fifth have been the rise of the Ottoman Turks and the downfall of Constantinople uh, toward the end of the 15th century uh, using gunpowder for the first time and that this is uh, anticipation of those tremendous events I think to say come come why would God possibly be interested in telling first century people resident in western Turkey the seven churches in Asia Minor about the fall of Constantinople to the Turks I'd have to say two things A that was about the future of that very part of the world that those original addressees were first living in second that the rise of Islam and its uh, annihilation and enslavement for a long period of a large part of Europe uh, and, and then finally the domination by Islam uh, of a large part of Greece and Bulgaria and Hungary for many many centuries is something that most modern Western European Christians and people living in parts of the world colonized from Western Europe have no idea of the import and the scope of what took place so I would urge you to study the importance of the rise and the spread of Islam as it has affected European and Western civilization particularly in this time frame between approximately 640 AD through what about 1496 AD and that brings me to Revelation 10 which is again difficult but I'm inclined to think that what we have here is the invention of printing at the very time that the Mohammedans were battering down the uh, uh, Constantinople the invention of printing that's the little book you see and when this little book the Bible is now printed and made accessible historically to God's people uh, they must prophesy again to many people and nations and tongues and kings so that when I reach Revelation 11 I don't centrally see there the fall of Jerusalem to the pagan Romans in AD 70 although I do recognize echoes there of that event which has previously taken place but what it seems to me and indeed to most Protestant expositors uh, to, be, to be describing is the beginning of the liberation of the Roman Catholic Church uh, so that the uh, inner sanctuary of the temple are, is the true believers within Rome and the court of the Gentiles are the nominal Roman Catholics and the two witnesses there are of course the Protestant rediscovery of the importance of the law and of the prophets the little book of Revelation 10 as the tool that will finally bring about the downfall of Rome and then you know that it says a tenth of the city fell I listened to Bonson's tape recently and he said well I believe that the city here is Jerusalem but I cannot explain I cannot offer an explanation of what the tenth of the city is and that was a humble admission that I, uh, I, I appreciated 
and this is a chapter fraught full of difficulty but I will offer a possible explanation of the tenth of a city you see if the city that we're concerned with here is not uh, AD 70 Jerusalem but it is indeed medieval Roman Catholicism that is the fourth beast with the ten horns then the fall of one of these horns would be the fall of one-tenth of the citizenry of the Romish so-called Holy Roman Empire and there are many expositors starting with Thomas Goodwin and Archbishop Usher after him says the same thing they say this is a prediction that not just one-tenth of Romanism will fall but they actually specified I don't know how they did it they must have been really smart but they said France is this horn and they predicted the French Revolution you should go into the Puritan predictions of the French Revolution uh, going all the way back to uh, uh, the uh, 17th century it really is something <coughs> and um, so we need to recognize the tremendous importance of the French Revolution and it was important never minimize the French Revolution do you realize that when the French Revolution succeeded that was the first time in a millennium in a thousand years that any government had ever been erected in Europe which did not pay at least lip service to Jesus Christ it was a momentous event of catastrophic historical proportions even tried to undermine the United States that was struggling to be born at that time with Lafayette and, uh, and Voltaire's ideas and Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin and others hurtling backwards and forwards across the ocean to Paris and so forth but fortunately failed so that America did end up with a constitutional Christian Republic but not without a tr tremendous struggle at that time and so the French Revolution is the voice of the pit it's not just the falling away of one-tenth of the Romish Roman Empire but it is also the what Van Til I think would call if he were to think eschatologically on this point the final epistemological consequences of atheism beginning to think itself out uh, to the ultimate conclusion because you see and I don't have the time to go into this but take my word for it and uh, if you like consult some books about it four five volumes uh, threat to the West by a man called Nivenhuis or in English that's in Dutch in English my own thick book on communist eschatology in which I have documented from communist literature their admitted dependence upon the principles of the French Revolution Lenin said at the beginning of the century that Jacobinism, Illuminatism, Illuminism is social democracy he stated it and he said that when they take over Russia they will implement those principles and those who think this is just a John Birch Society um, um, scarecrow should forget about reading American opinion for a while and start reading Lenin for a while and then you'd see that some of the things found in American opinion not all of them are indeed stating exactly what the communist authors themselves said they were doing that's why the fall of this one-tenth of the city is a matter of momentous importance and you may say well what possible interest could the first century AD Christians living in Turkey have had in the French Revolution or the Communist Revolution I must reply as much interest then as you and I have in the final uh, re reaching of the millennium and then the termination of the millennium we're not there yet at least not at the termination of the millennium I don't think we're into it yet but we'll all agree we're not at the termination of it and yet we anticipate these things that have been laid down in God's word they're relevant to us because the word of God is relevant to us because we do not absolutize the importance of our own life and the time frame that we're living in but we see ourselves as part of this mighty historical flow of the expanding kingdom of God and of God's people on the earth well um, isn't it wonderful to know in Revelation 11 verse 13 that after the earthquake the remnant were affrighted that they gave glory to the God of heaven this seems to show that in spite of these terrible calamities God's people and God's saints begin to win nonetheless Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 they the saints overcame him Satan 
by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Here is a problem for all Bible interpreters, the function of the 12th chapter. Does it take you back again to Calvary, or does it pick up in the middle of church history, or even after A.D. 70, if you like, from that point? And I think we're all going to have to say that it does seem to go back to Calvary, although there is a large body of Protestant expositors who argue that the man-child that the woman gives birth to is not Jesus Christ, but that it is Protestantism that was given birth to at the time of the Reformation by the semi-apostate Roman Catholic Church in a similar way to which the semi-apostate Jewish Church previously gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ at the Incarnation. But I'll leave that for what it is. And then, Revelation 15, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of grass, glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over the image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God and they sing the song of Moses the servant of God and the song of the Lamb saying great and marvelous are thy works Lord God Almighty just and true are thy ways thou King of Saints who shall not fear thee O Lord and glorify thy name for thou only art holy for all nations shall come and worship before thee the inevitable conquest. All nations shall come and worship before thee. I really flew over Revelation 13 and 14. I'll simply say that I think the first beast is the resurrected pagan empire of Rome. In other words, Charlemagne, and that the second beast is the official papacy, as the two work hand in hand up to the time of the Reformation. And that I think at the beginning of Revelation 14 what you have are the pre-reformers, people like us and Wycliffe, who begin to prepare the, uh, the, the scene for the arrival of the Protestant Reform Reformation, uh, the rediscovery and the preaching of the Word of God through the invention of printing that little book as it is directed against Rome and broader than Rome, the whole anti-Christian world system, and to bring it down with the guarantee of the inevitability of victory and in 15 verse 4 all nations shall come and worship before thee you come to Revelation 16 that's a happy hunting ground believe me it is for all kinds of strange interpretations but by and large I would agree not necessarily with the application but with the main historical thrust of the great John Cotton uh, another very important work here Apart from Jonathan Edwards's history of redemption is John Cotton on the pouring out of the vials of God. And you see that these men think historically. Some of the applications they made today somewhat amuse us as we look back from the sophistication of 1981. But nevertheless, it shows how they, as great and godly men, did think about it. I suppose one of the weaknesses of historicism is people that try to make definite applications of when it was achieved. And this I'll have to admit. But on the other hand, the same could have been said in, uh, in, in pre-Christian days about how attempts were made by Jews to construe Daniel's prophecies, and yet we do know, and we can clearly see today with a large measure of agreement, whatever our eschatology, at least the identity of those four beasts. So, what shall I say? I'll say there are those, and I'm inclined to agree with them, who say that uh, Revelation 16.10 the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast is the Protestant Reformation, pouring out the wrath of God on the Vatican. And then the sixth angel opening up the Euphrates River. Um, I take it to mean, uh, well now here, what does it mean? It means that um, the Euphrates is opened up, why? So that Mao Zedong <laughs> can attack Western Europe today this is a possibility that I wouldn't entirely want to discount but I think you can also see it as many have that it means that the methods of transportation so increase that it becomes possible so that the through transportation 
through the opening of the sea route to India, for example, the way can be prepared for the Christianization of the kings of the East. And this, of course, is what the Dutch East India Company and the English East India Company did. They sent their chaplains out to the kings of the East to preach God's word. Now, at the moment, we're living in a, uh, a passing phase of anti-Christian reaction to this, but we're waiting for the next great wave of Christianization, as Kenneth Scott Latourette would say, to carry us forward and launch us further into the world than ever before. And so, um, um, I would uh, offer that possible interpretation to that, the inevitability of the conquest of the kings of the East by the Gospel. Pass over the next section, although I'm sorely tempted to say a lot about those three frog spirits in the light of the ecumenical movement and the rise of spiritism and some would say even neo-Pentecostalism, but I must restrain myself at this point and plow straight into the inevitability of conquest in uh, Revelation 17. I'll make only one statement there and that is, this of course is the further development of Daniel 7 as I indicated chapter 17 verse 16 the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast ten kings of Europe these shall hate the whore the alliance between Rome and western Europe will be broken and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire now these horns verse 14 shall previously have made war with the lamb but the lamb shall overcome them for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful I believe what we have here is an anticipation of the inevitable conquest of Rome, Romish Rome pagan civilization by the expanding forces of King Jesus his church under the leadership of King Jesus he being physically absent then the tremendous uh, fall of Rome in Revelation 18 I was interested to see that Barnson on his tapes while I think uh, applies uh, Revelation 6 the fall of Jerusalem does he not in AD 70 didn't listen to that tape but I'm told that he does uh, when he gets to Revelation 18 says no this is not again a full statement of the fall of Jerusalem this is the fall of Rome he doesn't give a date there but I'd assume he would say about 4th century AD 312, 321, something like that. So even there, you see, we, we have him thinking historistically in terms of having moved on the scene at least from A.D. 70 to A.D. 312 or 321. The inevitability of historicizing, I think, in the end. But anyway, we'll leave it as it may be. The interesting thing to me about the fall of, of Revelations, point brought out by the great amillennialist Klaus uh, uh, Skilder, he says you'll notice that what is destroyed is this pagan civilization but not the good things in it the bad guys are destroyed but we don't read that the ivories are destroyed and the wine and the and the gold and all of the cultural objects what happens to them the saints pick them up you see Christianize them and incorporate it into the reign of the saints that's a very, very valuable and an important insight. In other words, what Skilder is saying, he says, the saints in Revelation 18, as they destroy uh, the, um, the non-Christian rulers of civilization, do not destroy whatever is good in that civilization. They Christianize it, just as the Hebrew people, when they left uh, Egypt uh, and shuffled off the rule over them of those pagans, were careful to take whatever was worth having with them out of Egypt, the silver and the gold, etc., and to reutilize that on the basis of the expanding kingdom of Christ. Revelation 19, I agree totally with Warfield there, that um, what we have here, Christ riding on the white horse from heaven, is really a further intensification of what had already been said about the white horse back in Revelation 6. In other words, it's not the second coming of Christ. It is a powerful preaching of the gospel. But then it is the preaching of the gospel uh, through the sword of the Lord that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. That's what brings down this pagan world system described in Revelation 18. 
and brings it down, I would say, on a universal scale. So that at the end of Revelation 19, what we have uh, is the destruction of the beast and the false prophet but then in verse 21 the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse now I agree with Bonson here the slaying of the remnant doesn't mean the annihilation or the assassination of the remnant but it means I think the Christianization of what is left of these previous, previously deluded dupes and that then of course brings us into Revelation 20 and the beginning of the millennium and a very big problem as we approach Revelation 20 which we'll do after a short break now is whether Revelation 20 goes right back to Calvary and starts anew from there or whether Revelation 20 verse 1 describes a condition which follows the fulfillment of the destruction of uh, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophets uh, described at the end of Revelation 19 uh, but we'll leave that problem for a few minutes while we pause now. I'm not making it, but it is made for the position of hope uh, that you have read history first and then you go to the Bible. Well, I would say that the Bible is to me basically a book of history. That would be my first reply. The Bible is a historical document. It's many other things too, but it's also history. And uh, I think that we need to realize that man is a historical being we all have a past the present and the future and that the Bible speaks specifically in the dimension of history and uh, that the rest of history secular history is to be evaluated of course in terms of the Bible and not the other way around yet there is a connection between what the Bible says about history and uh, what we know about history from extra biblical sources what's the connection well, the connection is God, by his common revelation, is revealing himself in history. As they facetiously say, history is his story. That's true. But because of sin, as Calvin says, we are incapable of evaluating history the way that it really is without the Bible. Now, Adolf Hitler, you remember, described the march on Munich and the success he had there, what was it, 1930-something? 36 thereabouts he called it the finger of God and of course to him at that time it was why because he made that evaluation on the basis of success separated from the Bible but now what would Hitler say by 1946 was it the finger of God and so perhaps we'll need to distinguish between the finger of God and the hand of God and the, and the arm of God and it's not always an easy thing to be able to assess where we are in the fulfillment of history. But that doesn't mean that significant things are not happening. It was very significant when Jesus was born and when he died, although a lot of people who saw it happening didn't think it was significant at the time. To some extent, the flow of future events gives one the necessary perspective to determine how significant that event was that we thought was significant or insignificant at the time it was happening. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.